and welcome to A Century in Cinema. My name is Arthur. I'm a local filmmaker here in Utah, and um, I am dying over and over in Dark Souls 3. Oh, you're just going in on them, on the From Software. I both love and hate them. You know how it is. I do. And I'm Snape pissing a can. <laughs> <laughs> I have a perky attitude. I like long walks on the beach. <laughs> Pina coladas. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm Andrew, and I'm a professional film historian. And I am I am wearing a bandana and eye patch. The picture was sent to Arthur. I just kept that on. Oh hell yeah! I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty badass right now. You are badass. The thing is, is that he isn't wearing a bandana in the movie. And I cannot explain it to you, but when I'm in the bandana and the eye patch, I look more like him. I don't understand it, but I do. So I just sort of am rolling with it. This is a podcast where we watch and discuss a classic film that I haven't seen. But I most likely have. From every year. This week we're in 1981. We're watching Escape from New York from mm. director John Carpenter and starring Kurt Russell. For any new listeners, you can find where our movies are streaming or available to rent online down in the link in our show notes. I myself actually watched this one on Criterion Channel, which is not where I expected to find it, but uh, that's where it is. It felt good giving them that stream. It really did. Uh, what a what a great what a great choice for the Criterion <laughs> Channel streaming. Now, in our bonus episode available to Patreon subscribers, we asked the question: What? Would an escape from New York video game look like? Now, in uh, 1981, a bunch of random stuff happens, so I'll just mention things. It's the first flight of the U.S. space shuttle Columbia. The Russian spacecraft Venera 13 lands on Venus and takes photos. In Poland, martial law is declared to suppress labor strikes. It's a whole big deal. The president of Egypt is assassinated. Following up, we uh, have been talking about the peace talks between Egypt and Israel. A uh, previously unknown symphony written by Mozart is discovered this year. You know anything about this? No, never heard of that. He wrote it when he was nine. Hmm. Is it like, like would I know it? Like, is it famous now? You know, I didn't look it up. Oh, well, we'll listen to that for Patreon content. Great. Just kidding. <laughs> we really could uh, for another episode. <laughs> Spoilers. Keep the secrets. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> uh, over in the UK, Margaret Thatcher privatizes national industries to revitalize the economy. Inflation rates are still really high all over the world. And Lady Diana Spencer marries Prince Charles. Now a major motion picture, as I understand it. Yeah, I'm sure that's all going to work out real well. Hmm. And the word, quote, internet, unquote, is used for the first time this year. Or at least documented, I don't know. Do you know what the context it was? In I this? think it was used in relationship to an IBM, a new IBM computer or something like this. Yeah, I don't know. Internet, first usage. Now, it's not until 1983 that the internet is officially, like, I don't know, turned on birthed see my google says the term internet was first used in 1974 nobody knows this is real this is nobody knows who first used the word internet it just <laughs> became a shortcut around this time for internet working 
So there you go. Most of what I'm telling you is more complicated than can be summed up in one single sentence. But that's where we are. Now, I do want to ask you a question because you kicked this segment off with things are random and like, you know, there's just a bunch of different events to get to. Do you think history actually is becoming more random at this point or do you think it's becoming closer to where we are in time that the narrative isn't as neat and tidy now? Great question. Okay. I just No answer. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I just thought that was interesting. When you said that, I was like, hmm, well, I mean, it's only going to get weirder and more complex from here because eventually we're going to start talking about shit we were there for, you know? Yeah. Things follow up from, because we've been talking about like the, the Middle East and there's, there's always follow up with stuff there. And I feel like that narrative will just continue. Right. Does history have a narrative? Uh, probably uh kind of history is determined by the victors right isn't that what we say that's that's always a thing but also the narrative that we choose to put on history at any given time i think says more about where we are at as a culture at any given time like where we are now uh what we're thinking about what we're interested in obviously right now 2021 2022 uh we're really fascinated with okay how does disease influence uh society where does that sort of lead us uh whereas i think a lot of history uh, people like to talk about wars wars always feel like there's a narrative there's a winner a victor a loser uh you know that's a that's a big question i'm not prepared yeah. to answer it that's fair um a little bit about film history united artists the film production studio started by charlie chaplin way back in the day it is acquired by MGM, and it's considered the loss of a major studio, and it was because they funded Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate, which was a huge flop and lost a bunch of money, and is the reason that that studio went down. Also, this this is the year that a man falls so deeply in love with Jodie Foster that he attempts to assassinate Ronald Reagan. That's this year, 81? Yes, those are some fun little tidbits. There's a there's a Stephen Sondheim musical about that guy. It's called Assassins. It's got a it's got great music. <laughs> um, it is a great it's a phenomenal show. Oh, and follow up for our loyal listeners. This is the year that Natalie Wood mysteriously drowns. Oh my! Yeah. So you know a lot of a lot of loose ends coming together. Now that narrative felt kind of all over the place and random. I guess that's true. Yeah. But I mean, her husband just did it anyways. Um, Andrew, tell me what I should watch. What are some five film recommendations you have for the year of 1981? All right. So I don't know if you remember this, but you had mentioned a friend of yours was doing a podcast on dance films. Oh, yeah. Hannah. Yeah. You wanted to bring her on. And if we had brought her on, it would have been for Carlos Saura's Blood Wedding. This is such a good movie and it is so simple. What it is, is it's an actual, uh, it's an actual flamenco dance that was choreographed by Antonio Gades. And this is a final dress rehearsal and they know a camera is going to be there. And so the first like 10 minutes of the movie is just the cameraman backstage sort of interviewing people before they're going to go on. And they aren't even performing on the actual stage. They're performing in the rehearsal space with mirrors at the front and the back. And when it first starts, you're thinking, wow, I'm watching some really good dancing. And through the magic of the movies, Arthur, even though you know you're magic. just watching a dress rehearsal, 
you get so enraptured in the story of this dance and this singing and this performance. And the ending is so tragic that it hits you as a narrative film would. Blood Wedding is a great movie and I is impossible to find. I do own a very, very rare DVD of it as one of my prized possessions. I would show it to anyone at any time. I will not let anyone borrow it. Hopefully, Carlos Saura's Flamenco Trilogy, in general, can get a re-release in the modern era because it deserves to be seen by so many people. Fun fact, Sundance 2020, uh, two months before everything went to hell, I uh, showed the entire trilogy on the tower screen, and no less than three Sundance directors who were there came up and asked me about it, and I feel like I helped get the word out about that trilogy during that festival. Hell yeah. Remind me the name of the film? Blood Wedding. Love it. Next up is the cool, slick diva directed by Jean-Jacques Binet. It's a French thriller about a young man who is obsessed with an opera singer, the titular diva, you might say. And he secretly records one of her concert performances using a tape recorder. Unknowns to him, he has accidentally become embroiled in this plot where he could have possibly caught a murder on his recorded tape. And it becomes a tale of espionage and thrills and excitement. And it's just such a, it's just such a great film. Uh, we've talked about Roger Ebert before in my fluctuating opinion on him, but the first great movies essay I ever read from Roger Ebert was about Diva. And it made me seek it out and I, love it it is such a good movie yeah so diva good times love it next up is son of the white mare it's a hungarian animated film about this hungarian myth about this man who was the third son of this horse inside of a tree look the plot is not why you're watching this movie this movie is constant transitional animation it's one huge flowing image and it tells an epic tale of heroism and it's sort of an Aesop fable with the moralities and stuff underneath it but the way it's created and the way it moves you've never seen anything like it I think as of today I think it's on Criterion channel December 27th if you've if you've been seeking out animation but you want something that feels a little different and a little more out there this is a perfect one to go for it tells a very simple story but it tells it in the most beautiful way possible son of the white mare really good stuff love it next up is the david cronenberg sci-fi horror classic scanners have you seen yeah you seen scanners yeah okay <laughs> yeah. i feel like i, I start something with you seen this yeah. and then but okay <laughs> scanners is a hell of a ride of a movie again the plot is so secondary to all the body horror and effects i mean yeah it's about these people who have telekinesis and society and blah 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 cronenberg loves doing that kind of stuff all of his movies have these dark sort of under the under the rug narratives that are talking about deeper issues within the world but also they're just about two men staring at each other till their heads blow up and i think that's great <laughs> so scanners from david cronenberg my fourth recommendation for my final recommendation of the year i have to say my all-time favorite war film which is das boot this movie moves me on a level that so few films can I'm kind of an easy crier in movies, I won't lie. If a movie moves me in the right way, I will just roll with it. 
I'm not an easy baller. This movie just makes me ball like a baby. I just, I just weep and sob for the loss of humanity. The first time I, I have I already told the story about Das Boot on this podcast. You know, we've recommended it before because both of us have seen it and both of us love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we talked about it during one of our World War II episodes because it's a story about German submariners during World War II. Right. And the the first time I watched it, I just popped it on thinking, you know, I was going to watch the first couple of hours because it's an over four hour movie. And then mm-hmm. I just at, at the intermission, I just buckled down and was like, here we go and finished it because I was so engrossed with it. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's just incredible. I, I wish everyone in the world see this. This would be the actual movie that I made my society mandate. Everyone has this like four and a half hours in their day to watch Das Boot because first of all, it's a longer period of time. So people can take a longer break. And this is the better movie <laughs> Then I can't remember what I said that about in the past. You said Nashville. Nashville. You said it, you would mandate everyone watching Nashville. Nashville. Right. I mean, <laughs> I th- well, this is the thing. If it was the Das Boot block, you would still have time to watch Nashville if you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> you could watch basically any movie you wanted to. <laughs> I mean, they should just be grateful we haven't brought up Das Boot every single episode because I really do think there's a way we could have done that. So we only did it twice. But uh, can I recommend a little obscure film? Uh, go for it. Which, what What do you got? <laughs> It's uh, this Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, I've been meaning to watch that one. Yeah, it's pretty good. A young up and coming Steven Spielberg uh, starring uh, Harrison Ford. I think it's I think it's Harrison Horde. Oh, let me look it up. He's from he's from. Yeah. <laughs> our, our, our fact checkers are, are at work in the background. <laughs> We should just mention these are also the years that Evil Dead, Possession, and Blowout come out, which all change the face of horror forever. Oh, yes. Incredible films. I love Possession. Mm-hmm. I love Evil Dead. I like. I love them all, but I love Evil Dead. Like, something about that movie's shoestring budget and just, just how cheap it looks. You know, they're not, they're not making up for it. You can't be like, oh, man, it doesn't even look like it costs $5,000. Like, no, it definitely does. But it adds to, like, the charm of it. I just, I love that movie. It's a very inspirational film for upcoming filmmakers. Evil Dead. Mm -hmm. And Possession is fantastic. Blowout, one of De Palma's best. Possession's interesting because it's about the couple and their divide, how they can't reconcile with each other. But it's also like a little allegory for uh, the relationship between America and the Soviet Union. Mm. It all takes place in Germany, the the Berlin Wall. And there's a puppet. A really <laughs> gross one. A really gross animatronic puppet in that movie. Ugh, yeah. They do a good job. Th- those kids did a good job. I, I seriously love 80s films. Like I said, it feels like we're getting into the modern era of films. And uh, there's a lot of good stuff that we could mention every year from here on out. Yeah, Mad Max 2, Time Bandits, History of the World Part 1, The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Who knows? Who knows? You know? There's a Fastbender film this year, and I didn't even recommend it. Because what what we haven't talked about yet is that Fastbender releases like six films a year from this point until he dies. But I didn't even recommend one because there were other movies I wanted to talk about. So, because we have a lot to get to in this episode. I mean, we've got we've got a whole ass New York to escape from right now. You got the plot this week. In the not too distant future of 1997, crime in America has quadrupled. And Manhattan has been walled off to function as a giant prison island, 
where criminals are thrown into a post-apocalyptic city to fend for themselves. <laughs> Enter Snake Plissken, an infamous war hero turned criminal who is being taken to the dystopian prison state when Air Force One is hijacked and crashed into New York City and the president has gone missing in the crash. Also, the president is scheduled to meet to negotiate peace between the Soviet Union and China, who I think we're at war with or something is going on. I didn't quite catch that. Uh, (laughs) Nonetheless, Snake Plissken is forced by the prison warden to infiltrate the city and find the president. Snake is injected with an explosive that will kill him if he doesn't find the president within 22 hours before the summit. But the president is being held by the Duke of New York, the kingpin of the criminal society, who wants to use the president as a bargaining chip to gain amnesty for all the criminals left to rot in the city. Now, Snake Plissken teams up with a ragtag bunch of prisoners who work together and backstab one another to rescue the president and escape from New York. After a series of set pieces, Snake gets the president to safety just in the nick of time. But as the president transmits his peace summit, lo and behold, Snake Plissken has switched the president's taped message with a tape of bandstand boogie to embarrass him. Snake destroys the actual tape as a final screw you to the people who forced him into this whole damn situation. This plot was written by a five-year-old with crayons. And then executed by masters of the craft. (laughs) (laughs) I wish more movies were like that. Be real. Oh, Listen, it takes about a third of this film, one third, to set up what the hell is going on. Just to put all the chess pieces on the board and be like, then the president's over here and there's a guy named Snake and there's a whole city that's walled off and it's a prison now. And uh, uh, all right, now, now, now I let him go. But it takes a while to just like mm. set up all this bullshit. And I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, this is really fun. I had never seen this before. I actually I've seen quite a few John Carpenter horror films, but never one of his action movies. And Big Trouble in Little China was always the first one I wanted to watch. But then this was on the list. So I thought, oh, well, whatever. So no surprises here. You like this movie. No surprises. Yeah. No, I don't have any surprises. Yeah. No surprises from me either. I love John Carpenter. I was into this. Yeah, I, I thought this was so much fun. It made me it made me nostalgic for a time that I was not alive for <laughs> uh, mainly like nostalgic for being an opening weekend audience member for this. Just it just seems like it's so much fun. Go get drunk and go see this movie. Oh, girl, I'm on mushrooms for this. <laughs> I, I am on like I, I want to be like, Wah! I want to be laughing and like just loosey goosey. Like, I don't want anything holding me back. I mean, this is a ridiculous film and it knows it's stupid but just like a lot of john carpenter's films uh even though the premise is all the way out there i still think that uh it's a little smart oh yeah it's very clever i think it's clever um and i I thought the ending especially really sort of cemented it i mean i guess we can just jump into it i mean yeah i really 
wasn't digging the ending for a second when the president shot the Duke and was like, now who's number one, blah, blah, blah. And it felt very jingoistic and uh, very like, oh, the president, you know, he came out on top and that's our president. Wow, he's taking down the black guy. I really was oh, yeah, like, yeah. oh, my God, this is not age well. But then when what actually goes down goes down, when Snake is like switches out the tapes and uh the president is made to look like a fool. And uh, what does he even ask him? He's like, what did you think of all the people who died for you to escape? And he said, we really, I really appreciate their sacrifice. And he's so busy getting in makeup and getting ready for TV that he can't even give a genuine comment. It feels like that's the moment snakes making a decision where if he gave the right answer, he would give him the correct tape. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I really, I really liked that final moment because yeah, like, (laughs) Like, screw the president. <laughs> like, you know, it's just, you know, it is a horrible position, but then you have to be a horrible person to want to be in that position. So I don't know. We don't, we don't have to get too political on here. Although I do think this film is pretty political, even though it's stupid. It's very political. It's weird, though. It's not taken one side or the other. I feel like Snake Plissken is this author avatar for John Carpenter, and he just doesn't give a shit about what anyone else is doing, what the fascist police state is doing in this film, or what the idiotic revolutionaries are trying to do in this film. Everyone's stupid, except for him. So it's relatable. And you know how much I love Harry Dean Stanton, and I thought he was just wonderful in this. Who's that? Who's that? Uh, He was Brain. Oh, yeah, yeah, he was great. Paris, Texas, Alien, really great actor. Oh, yeah, that's where I've seen him from, of course. When Snake Plissken goes into the city, he meets an old friend from the from his war days uh, who's also been uh, imprisoned. But his old friend Brain is uh, sort of the Duke's right hand man and uh, they team up. I, I really liked when they were doing the overhead grid views of the city and it says on the screen downward view because I really can imagine an audience member in 1981, if that wasn't there, being like, what the hell am I looking at? Like it. <laughs> oh, the primitive CGI stuff. Yeah. That was pretty cool to see. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it specifically says you're looking down like it's telling the audience. This is what it, this is what it's supposed to look like, because you can totally <laughs> tell how without that little cue, it might be a little tough to decipher. <laughs> I loved that miniature plane. I loved that miniature plane rolling all the way to the end of the Twin Towers. Oh, yeah. That was cool. A very provocative image in 2021. (laughs) Uh, Like, you see it it flying towards... You see a plane flying towards a building that it's going to crash into at the very beginning of the film, and the Twin Towers are, like, to the left. And I, I won't lie. I was just thinking, wow, you know... It might not be crashing into the Twin Towers, but it's definitely still sort of evoking that. Absolutely. This was not showing on TV in 2002, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I highly doubt it. It was, it was The last time it was broadcast was September 10th, 2001. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I don't have anything to back that up. You you were just making stuff up. I'm I, I'm always on this on this <laughs> podcast. I, I've never said a single fact on here, and people like repeat what I say as if it's true. I'm like, ha. Ah. Um, what was I gonna? I oh the the miniatures and map paintings in this film. Mm-hmm. I I know it had a really low budget, and you can kind of tell for a lot of the set pieces, but that stuff looked great. I thought 
the visual effects and everything were a lot of fun. Oh yeah, the bridge chase scene with the ex- with the mines exploding, uh, the big action scene inside of the building when he shot the hole in the wall, people coming out through the sewer pipes and stuff. You can kind of tell that everything's being done under budget, but it still looks gritty and cool, and it gets the energy across that you don't really care. A young James Cameron was working in the special effects department for this film. Yeah, I read that. Of course, going on to make Titanic and uh, a little film called Avatar. Avatar. Who just loves uh, visual effects. Uh, yeah, speaking of weird cameos in this movie, your opening when you were when you were saying the plot description and you just straight up stole the prologue from the movie for the beginning of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Jamie Lee Curtis recorded that. Oh, really? Uh-huh. It was uh, she, <laughs> cool. she recorded that and she recorded the voice for the computer. She's uncredited. Oh, she just showed up to set one day and uh, John had her had do her voiceover. Well, this movie wouldn't have happened without Halloween because the when he yes. first pitched the script, they said the studio said this is too dark and people will not like something this dark and violent. And then when Halloween was such a huge success, they said, oh, well, clearly they will. So let's do that one now. Yeah, because didn't John Carpenter... Well, he must have pitched this like mid 70s then because it was all in reaction to the Watergate scandal going on. Right. And again, screw the president. So, yeah, it took a little while, but this feels very much like a dystopian 70s movie rather than like, I don't know, like a fun 80s romp. It's sort of a fun 80s romp. It definitely is. The characters uh, feel like they're from like a stupid 80s action movie, but the tone of it does feel like society is falling apart Uh, comparing the depiction of new york here uh to the depiction of new york in uh manhattan Mm. was funny because woody allen has his nostalgia glasses on and he 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 sees new york as just this beautiful place and uh i think here we see in new york it's exaggerated of course but new york in the 1970s was infamous for uh, high crime rates and and all sorts of corruption within like the police force i think in in 75 like the city defaulted on its debt or something like that like it could it just couldn't get money there was like a whole there's a whole situation where they had to ask the federal uh government for money and the the president at the time gerald ford said no uh it, it just felt like the whole city was falling apart so i can i can see even though this feels completely unrealistic and stupid where someone's mind might go to create a situation like this. Let's just turn it into a, a prison. Let's just throw all the violent criminals in there right. and forget about it. Yeah. And then you compare all that to the depiction of New York City and Kagemusha and a, a whole a whole <laughs> mosaic starts coming together. <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> um so we don't have a review. You sent me a nice a nice little video. I mean, this is kind of a review. Uh, yeah, okay, I guess that's true. It is a review. It's just not something that people can read. It's not our traditional like article in a magazine review. This is a it's it's a segment from a TV show, Sneak Previews with Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel. I don't know much about this, but it clearly predates their uh thumbs up thumbs down. Yeah. Reviews that they would become famous for because at the end of this video, they just say liked it or didn't like it or something. <laughs> they just say Cisco recommends this and Ebert does not. But they haven't like branded it yet into that thumbs up, thumbs down thing. But this is like this is Ebert being wrong. Here we go. It's finally time. <laughs> it's finally time. 
I can't quote him because it's a video, but yes, he is wrong here he in the video. doesn't like the ending. He thinks that the ending brought the whole movie down. Ebert, like, he he loves the hot takes. And there's a part of me that wants to believe that these were all his genuine opinions. But there's another part of me that truly does believe he liked being provocative and getting people talking about movies. And I think he would do anything to do that. And I genuinely believe that he knew if they both agreed that the movie was just fun all the way through, that it wouldn't garner as much interest. I genuinely believe this. And this is not because I'm some conspiracy theorist. It's because he has done this. Like, he will do this later in his career. But his whole thing about the ending bringing the whole film down and seeming like it became a caricature of itself is just so silly because it's the only like truly poignant part of the whole film is when he swaps the tapes. That's like the one point of the movie where it isn't a full caricature of itself. And uh, and Siskel and Siskel thought the ending was fun and had a nice little point to make. Yes, Siskel is correct. I thought this was hilarious because they show they don't really do a review. They don't get too deep into their opinions. All right. They show three clips from the movie and they're, they're kind of letting their audience decide, OK, is this something you're interested in? And I respect that. Yeah. Watching the clips was really funny, though, because they censor all the language. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this movie is rated R. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they censor ass. You can't say ass on TV. I just thought that was funny. I mean, I, the TV I watch nowadays is. I mean, Game of Thrones has too much ass. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah this is yeah this is a fun little time capsule yeah you ever think we could have been uh siskel and ebert are we siskel and ebert right now uh we're like a very unpopular siskel <laughs> and ebert yeah <laughs> unpopular makes it sound like people are actually paying attention enough to us to like <laughs> even have an opinion <laughs> we're like a not listen to not watch <laughs> oh but i'll take it yeah i'll take it <laughs> listen no our podcast is listed as a popular podcast on apple so i think we're doing something right okay just tongue pop for that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Okay. Yeah, this was fun. Yeah. As soon as Ebert started talking, I was like, oh, he doesn't even like it. And then he just started dragging it and talking about how it was silly and a cartoon. As if those are critiques. As if that's not what the movie is trying to be. You know what I mean? Very yeah, frustrating. I think we talked about this. I think we've mentioned this in quite a few of our reviews. I just don't really love it when critics... And, you know, audiences in general try to make a movie into something that it's not. Mm. And they judge it based on that sort of moving the goalposts over there. I want it to be more thrilling. He wanted it to be a legitimate thriller. Did he read the plot? Mm. You can't make this. Uh, anyways, anyways. And for anyways. the world it sets up and for the rules Snake it sets Plissken. for itself, it is a legitimate thriller. It's a very thrilling film. Very exciting. Edge of your seat. Uh, he's fighting in the ring with that spiked bat. I I thought that was scary. That was that is like my one complaint with the film was they showed him throwing the spike bat into the back of his head. But then when he bent forward, there was no blood or anything. Boo. More violence. Yeah, I want like when he when he went when he went forward over the ring, I was like, what's even the point of showing me as an audience member the back of his head unless there's blood just 
like spewing from it. <laughs> they didn't have the budget for that quite yet. Then don't put that shot in. <laughs> there was just nothing. Like there was no mark or anything. It was so weird. He drove the spike into the back of his head. And then he bends forward and there's nothing at all. And I, I that was literally, that's my one critique. That's my one note. Well, I was going to say, as a whole, this is a very good-looking B-movie for the budget. How did they do that? How did they get this setting so right? So, yeah, it's this is such a funny story to me. So they, they were going to film in New York and they were going to try and dress it up. But then once they sort of understood what that task would be, they realized they did not have the budget for it. And then they were like, OK, well, we'll create like these citywide sets on a back lot. And again, once they realized what the budget would be for that, they, they realized they did not have the money for it. So they asked the locations manager, Barry Bernardi. They they described it as he got a uh, a fully paid country cross country road trip to find the worst city in the country <laughs> and then they filmed in St. Louis <laughs> I love it so much when I first heard that I thought that was the funniest thing ever like it's just such a good setup for a joke to even say we sent him around the country to find the worst city in the world and I was thinking Man, whatever city they say next it's gonna be good and then they're like St. Louis and I was like yeah that's that's funny uh, but yeah and then it was Joe Alvis who did the production design and they were throwing you know all these pieces of wood and glass and plastic that were painted to look like different pieces of wall and window and whatnot and they were just putting those up over everything and uh and it was already a really run down part of the city so they didn't have to dress it up too much and it looks great yeah it does the lighting in this film is beautiful yeah there's some really cool splashes of light everywhere i love that the shots are wide enough that we get to really take in a lot of the production design and the terrible city <laughs> uh that they that they filmed in uh but that was also sort of a lucky accident because of the budget they just uh didn't have any any time to shoot coverage and close-ups mm-hmm. a lot of the shots play out in the wides which i appreciate yeah same visually no notes at all i mean i love some of the early stuff when snake Plissken first gets to the city and he's just wandering around with his little tracking device trying to find the president and you know he stumbles into the theater performance going on and then sees people criminals just living their lives oh this is this is what people do in their free time i mean it's pretty terrible and uh scary it's like something out of a horror film makes sense with john carpenter Mm -hmm. but uh it's a lot of fun I, i like that kind of stuff i think i heard someone maybe it was roger ebert in that review that we just uh just watched uh someone said they wish they had seen more of the the world and just like exploring the the spaces around new york they probably just didn't have the budget to really explore a ton of it but i i appreciate that uh that that thought i would have liked to see more of okay how does this society actually function because it's really weird it's uh it's like wandering into the worst roche motel of all time and just seeing what people are making of it that's all i have to say about the production design yeah i wouldn't have minded seeing more of the world myself i would agree with that but also it's like i feel like this is one of those things where the more they tried to explain it the less sense it could possibly make so i do understand why they keep everything at such a distance uh yeah 
And again, you know, I, I can't stop thinking about Evil Dead and Mad Max 2 because these really are the three like low budget cult classic big movies that came out this year. And uh, you have Mad Max 2, which puts so much effort into its world building and really tries to convince you of, you know, how we came to this dystopian future. And then you have Evil Dead, which doesn't explain a single thing that ever happens on screen. It's just gore, 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 violence, violence, violence. And every scare is sillier and dumber than the last one. And you're like, okay, Hmm. someone's getting possessed. And then right in the middle, you have Escape from New York, which spends the first 30 minutes doing some world building just so things can make sort of sense. And then as soon as the plot comes in, they're like, "Okay, but don't like don't think about it too much. Just sort of roll with it. (laughs) They have gasoline. Just just believe me. They they they, they're. (laughs) Yeah, I hadn't even thought thought of Mad Max 2. Yeah, they (laughs) you know, where's the gas in Escape from NY? Where do they get it from? Wait, wait, wait. Wasn't it coming from? Didn't they have brain like mining it? Oh. They, he had that uh, he had the 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 little gas pump in 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 the museum oh, where he was hanging out. Oh my God. Did they just like tap into a gas line. I don't know. I completely <laughs> forgot about that. I really did. <laughs> I was so busy looking at Harry Dean Stanton's beautiful nose. I, he's a beautiful man. I, I love Harry oh, Dean okay. Stanton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you seen the sequel Escape from L.A.? <laughs> no. All I know is that the the world building is even dumber and i i haven't seen it but i know that in that film it's that an earthquake separates los angeles from the rest of the country and the president <laughs> sees it as like a sign from god and so he assigns los angeles as a penal colony and then the plot takes so like that one the world contributes <laughs> to it being like a prison island you have here in our notes John Carpenter slash Kurt Russell gush moment. I mean, they're they're just the iconic collab, right? I mean, yes. We talked about the thing. We had a whole episode about the thing earlier where we were supposed to be talking about a different movie. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I love I love the thing. Yeah. It's like so much, so much. Great film. And I haven't seen Elvis or Big Trouble in Little China, but I hear great things. I'm so excited for you to watch Big Trouble in Little China. It's so funny. Mason really wants to show it to me. Oh, hell. When you guys watch it, I I, I want to be there. Okay. It's so fun. I'll shoot you a text. I think Kurt Russell in Escape from New York is channeling some, like, caricature of Clint Eastwood. That's what he said. Okay. Okay. Because he's just, yeah, he's being too stupid. His character in Big Trouble in Little China he thinks he's like a badass. He thinks he's Clint Eastwood, but he's just some idiot truck driver that happens to be caught in this crazy like kung fu movie. It's it's funny because in my mind they've they've collabed more than that, but maybe they just haven't. Like in my mind, they live stars Kurt Russell, but it doesn't. Okay, I feel the same way, and I think. I almost I, I'm going to Google it, but I'm pretty sure he was supposed to star in it and then had another film that he couldn't get out of. And that's why it was Roddy Piper instead. Mm, OK, I, I think that's true. I might just be saying nonsense again on this podcast. I can literally visually see Kurt Russell doing that role. So it's like it's one of their collabs. <laughs> it might as well be yeah why not sorry roddy piper no one's talking about you anymore 
The role, the role of Nada was originally written for Kurt Russell, but John Carpenter felt he should cast somebody else after casting Russell in four of his films prior to this one. Where are you reading that? IMDb trivia, probably a lie. Hmm, can we trust IMDb trivia? I I do sometimes, and then I don't sometimes, and this is one of the times where I'm going to. But if we wanted to change that, we could. We could just go into IMDb and change that. But then 146 out of 150 people might not find it useful. Ah. Oh, interesting. They changed it to interesting. I haven't been on IMDb in forever. What am I doing here? I'm getting out. I haven't been there forever. That's a <laughs> dark place. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we like action movies. We like cheesy 80s action movies. I'm pretty sure our audience probably could have seen that one coming. Maybe they wouldn't have. Do you ever feel like people, because you like prestigious, more artsy films in general, that people assume you won't like something like Escape from New York? Um. Yeah, but I think there's I think there's a brand of B movie and genre films and cult films that pretentious people gravitate towards pretentious people like us you know Mm -hmm. or like this is this is the kind of schlock that i'm okay with yeah but then there's other schlock where we're like no i'm better than that like star wars (laughs) marvel movies marvel movies is it because disney makes them is that why we hate them maybe yeah maybe if you or they just just let john carpenter pretty this movie's pretty i saw spider-man no way home recently sorry you can cut this if you want but i saw spider-man no way home recently and while i enjoyed parts of it Visually, it left so much to be desired. Escape from New York is a very beautiful movie to watch. So I don't care that it's schlock because it's still presenting me with something cinematic and interesting and something that feels like it belongs and knows how the medium can be used effectively. Do you think it also has to do with just like popularity? Like straight up, the Marvel movies are incredibly popular. Star Wars is incredibly popular. But we feel like we want to... Uh, champion lesser seen films we want people to see things that are underappreciated so we go out of our way to recommend them and uh sing their praises i mean i really did love this film uh but it's not high art i've confronted that within myself for sure because i wouldn't want to hate something because it's popular and i legitimately love avatar i mean that's just the go-to because it was the number one grossing movie of all time and i loved it when it was in theaters i've loved it the whole time so i loved it when it was popular i've i've loved it now that it's not popular you know like i've i've been through a journey with that movie and I, I, I would never watch something and think this is popular, so I'm not going to talk about it. Because there are movies that I just love that are popular. I mean, Dune. We both love Dune. Yeah. Yeah. And that was very popular with people. People like that a lot. And it was visually stunning and interesting to watch. And I legitimately, you know, get some enjoyment out of the Marvel films when I when I marathoned them. I, I found a new appreciation for them that I didn't expect. Uh, but I, I still think that you know, films like Dune, films like even Avatar. I know it grossed a, a million bajillion dollars. Two but, billion, uh, over two billion dollars. There's still like a backlash against those films. There's not a backlash against Dune so much, but it's still something that I felt like pressure to sort of champion because it's kind of an underdog in a way. Dune had an underdog element to it for sure. Hmm. You don't you don't agree because because there was the yeah. there was all the talk about them not being able to make the sequel and everything. And, you know, we all love Denny Villeneuve. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. And he's been flopping a lot before that. We really wanted this one to be a success. Yeah. 
I can, uh, yeah, I think that might be true to a certain extent. But I like, like I loved Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, and that's a Marvel movie. Yeah, that is a good movie. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't. Know. Uh, let's not confront that quite yet let's leave that for let's leave it for the 2020 episode (laughs) honestly when when we see films like like escape from new york uh, that don't get like a great critical reception either i also feel like compelled to be like no 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 you don't get it this is this is actually entertaining this is actually good that being said the critical response to Escape from New York, even back in the day, was pretty good, I think, just because Ebert didn't love it. Uh, I, I think generally people were on board with the the schlock. I know Vincent Canby, New York Times, called it, uh, you know, he said, don't take it too seriously, but this is fun. But I don't know. You don't hear a lot of people singing praises for Escape from New York. So I'm over here being like, I wish more people watched this. I wish more people appreciated this kind of dumb stupid movie. See, and for me this is a very popular film i think a lot of people have seen this yeah yeah i think escape from new york is a pretty popular film i think it's probably john carpenter's most popular besides halloween and the thing really i would have guessed yeah the, the the thing for sure i think it's halloween the thing and then escape from new york like i think those are his top three most popular films i think they live has quite a following I think the meme culture uh, that that has thrived off of They Live has made it more popular than something like Escape from New York, which even though Snake Plissken is a really popular character, I don't know if Escape from New York is a super popular movie. I mean, okay, I'll give you They Live. What's a more popular John Carpenter movie besides those three? And he's made a lot. Uh, Yeah, I would I would I would say this is like number four. I think that's still pretty well seen considering his movies in general are pretty well seen. Okay, yeah. This is a popular movie, Arthur. We watched a popular <laughs> movie for the podcast. Are we changing the episode now because of that? <laughs> now, what else is coming out this year? <laughs> we could have done Blood Wedding. <laughs> and you would have loved it. It is funny to watch this as a film reacting to the Watergate scandal, Considering it's not the first one we've watched as a reaction to the Watergate scandal, but I do think is the dumbest one that we watched that was a reaction to the Watergate scandal. Uh, And I did did love it, but it was just to watch reactionary fiction for this podcast specifically and to watch something like Nashville talking about, you know, the assassinations in the world, watching all the president's men that's going in depth. On the Watergate scandal itself and how it was revealed to the public, you know, all these films and then to watch this and he's like, yeah, this is my reaction to Watergate. And it's just a guy like shooting a hole in a wall and mowing through it. (laughs) I kind of I kind of loved it. It was nice. I think my favorite line in the film and the one that I thought about the most uh, when the prison warden is explaining the president has gone missing in New York. And Snake Plissken responds, the president of what? Oh, my God. I I snapped. I went. I, was, I, I loved that. That was like, it's so funny. So cynical and sassy and dumb. It's just. The president of what? <laughs> like the, the guy just doesn't care. He doesn't give a shit. And uh, yeah, I guess in reaction to Watergate, it's like, yeah. 
screw politics, screw the president, screw politicians, screw it all. And uh, uh, I, I can see why Snake Plissken as an anti-hero who just doesn't give a shit about the system that he's in uh, is an attractive figure. I think that's a that's an attractive caricature and archetype in a lot of American fiction. Yeah. Because of events like Watergate, because of a lot of political events. So it, it's it is funny. The president kind of revered in media, maybe not recently because of recent events. Mm. But uh, the president as a as a figure is usually respected. Uh, and I, I and I think that might be that might be more of a recent thing because you have films like this where the president's just an idiot. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it was Donald Pleasance's idea to wear the wig. He was wearing a wig. Remember when they have him? Uh, when they have him all tied up, and he's got the big long blonde. <laughs> yeah, the wig. That was Donald yeah. Pleasance's wig. Yeah, <laughs> he wanted to wear it. Okay, oh, did you read anything about Donald Pleasance in this movie while we're talking about the president? No. Okay, so he allegedly was really self-conscious about his American accent. And when he tried, oh, he's when he tried to use it in front of John Carpenter, John Carpenter was like, please don't do that. Like, just use your regular accent. And John Carpenter thought that was that. And he just like was a director and made a decision. And so Donald Pleasance came forward with this entire pitch about because of the situation of society in the world, the United States has rejoined forces with Britain. And he's like this presidential candidate who was a was a forging of the two cultures oh, the coming together building. and all this mm, stuff. Okay. And John Carpenter said, well, you can think that, but that's not that's not interesting enough to make it into the movie. So we're not going to say anything about that. So Donald Pleasance has a whole other movie going on in his head while they're filming it which is really funny to think about he's like gotta have real character motivation he's ha- he he has to understand why he has a british accent which is just so funny to me oh it's so funny that the american president in escape from new york has a british accent it's just it's a movie written by a five-year-old man mm-hmm. it's great well because he's a higher up person who's like posh so he has a british accent Right, so he has a British accent. <laughs> if I'm being honest, I didn't even notice until I read that about Donald Pleasance. And I was like, oh, he did have a British accent in that movie. No, I me neither. I hadn't me even neither. thought about it. Literally, Because we're so conditioned that like, yeah, the higher ups are posh <laughs> and they're British and they're arrogant. And we just like, we just think that. Yeah. Uh, I, I do. I guess I want to mention that this film uh, is super fun and dumb and uh, we we love it. Uh, probably if you were to watch this film from like a feminist perspective or like a race history perspective, just not 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 a great progressive film. Uh, I do think the film is saying something about racial it's inequality. Say, it's saying something. It is. I think it is. I, yeah. I found that to be very interesting because when I watched it, and like I said at the beginning of the episode, when the president shot down the Duke, I was like, man, like, this sucks that the president just shoots a black man and gets away with it. And I really thought that the movie was just sort of blind to it, but... I really I feel like that specifically is the moment Snake is talking about when he says a lot of people died because I think he saw that death as unnecessary. I think that's what the movie okay. is trying to portray. I really do because he oh, didn't okay. take the move to kill the duke. The president did. 
And then that's what kind of completely pisses Snake off to the point that he's like, I'm just going to make a fool out of you on television. Because I would assume that Snake is referring to his friends like, uh, you know, the cab driver who was killed and uh, Brain, you know, Mm -hmm. those the friends, the people that he teamed up with, because the Duke is still the bad guy throughout this movie. The the one black guy in the movie is a bad guy. I don't think if if any of the characters were black, uh, none of them would escape from some ridicule because everyone in this movie is kind of an idiot. But, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that the one black guy, the Duke, is shot. Uh, I don't know. I, th- I think you're I think you're on to something, but I, I, I still think the, the movie r- race theory and r- racial politics. I don't think that's the first thing on this film's uh, agenda. I might be wanting to give it more credit than it deserves. I might be. And that might be because I like it. Uh, and it's de- uh, feminism is definitely not the first definitely thing on not. this film's agenda. The the one woman in the, the picture walks around uh, just just naked. Basically. Yeah. Um, it is, uh, it's, um, Gene Siskel in the reviews just, I think he's something like, she's a horrible actress. Like, he just says that straight up. <laughs> I laughed, I laughed oh. really hard at that. Oh. Uh, yeah, that, that, he was like, Adrian Barbeau, who I just think is a terrible actress. Like, he says something like that, and I thought that was hilarious, because... I'm like, oh, you're singling her yeah. out? I mean... Yeah, of all the performances, okay. that's the one that didn't make the cut for Gene Siskel. So, so it's worth mentioning uh, the 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 non progressive uh, nature of of a film like this. But it's also making fun of uh, conservatives and the police state. And uh, my 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 takeaway is that John Carpenter just doesn't seem to like any side. This is a very cynical film with a with a heart of gold. That really is how I would describe it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The heart of gold being the cab driver, of course. Oh, Ernest Borgnine is so good in this movie. They wrote that role for him. They did? Yeah. He does a great job, yeah. I mean, he was a huge character actor at this point, right at the peak of his career. What else has he been in? He's really great in Johnny Guitar. He's really great in Gattaca. I love him in that. The Dirty Dozen. And then, of course, like his big movie is Marty. He's the he he's the titular Marty in Marty. I see. He's been in a lot. Going through our list, going through our lineup. Is there anything else that we should gush about? Nothing that comes to mind for me. I really enjoyed this film. This is a fun time at the movies. Uh, Hell yeah. Felt like here we go. We're getting into the 80s schlock. We're in it. Yeah, we're going to we're going to be out of it pretty soon because <laughs> next week we're watching Rainer Vanner Fassbender's Veronica Voss. Oh, this is an 80s schlock? No. No, this is a uh the, what what is this about? Oh, we're talking about that now. We never pitch it at the end. I guess we don't. Sometimes we have, but fair enough. Veronica Voss. I'll find out next week what it's all about. Yes, you will. Well, thank you so much to our uh, loyal listeners and to everyone tuning in. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast streaming service of your choice. Tell your friends and loved ones about our podcast if this is something they would be interested in listening to, or even if it's something they wouldn't be interested in listening to. Just make them listen to it. That's right. And so we will talk to you guys later and to our Patreon subscribers Uh, We have a fun little discussion about uh, video games, so stay tuned. And last but not least, 
Thank you to Nathan Royal for our show's music. 